Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world. We're heading down to Georgia today to talk to one of the central leaders in the attempt to close down the School of the Americas, based at Fort Benning, Georgia. His name is Roy Bourgeois, and he's a Catholic priest of the Mary Knoll Order. As a Catholic priest working with the poor of Bolivia, Roy witnessed firsthand the evil wrought by those trained at the School of the Americas. And when he returned to the USA, he made it his work to establish the School of the Americas Watch, S-O-A-W, an organization and long-standing effort to report on and close down the SOA. Their website is SOAW.org for School of the Americas Watch, and you can go there to find out about the annual massive gathering outside of Fort Benning in Georgia against the SOA. About 20,000 people gather there the weekend before Thanksgiving, November 20th to 22nd this year. It's quite an event, and you're welcome to join them there in just a few weeks. We'll talk to Father Roy Bourgeois about the School of America's Watch, his life, and his other passionate work. But first, I'd like to get you into a frame of mind for the upcoming witness with a song by David Rovix about the event. It's Song for the SOA, number two, by David Rovix, and then we'll talk to Roy Bourgeois. I hold up there at the gate. I'd come to keep a date with 10,000 of my friends Here to right some wrongs and make amends Folks came in buses, bikes and cars With voices, fiddles and guitars All kinds of people, shapes and styles Burn those frequent flyer miles First thing I see is a singing nun At the frisky age of 91 She's here fresh out of jail Told the judge I ain't got no bail I'm bearing witness right here and now Cause we've got to change the world somehow So with you all right here I pray We'll shut down the SOA There's this year's crop from Oberlin There's the folks from Warren Wilson But they're not all 18 to 22 They brought along their neighbors too There's grandma, baby, mom and dad And every kid fighting mad What are we gonna do today? We'll shut down the SOA There's some in pink, some in black There's one wrapped in a coffee sack There's t-shirts, stickers, pins and more Saying we don't want your oil war There's a labor lawyer from Walla Walla With some Mayan folks from Guatemala See north and south the people say We'll shut down the SOA 
but crossing lines, holding crosses, making signs. There's priests and punks and groups and pairs, along with the gang in wheelchairs. There's Josh and Abby, Bill and Sue, Charlie Tao and you know who. Giant puppets, paper mache, sand will shut down the SOA. Yeah, we'll keep coming to this town, till this torture school's shut down. Then we'll march as we intone. You do not walk alone to the next symbol in our sights in the global fight for human rights. But for now, we're here in this Georgia clay. Sand will shut down the SOA. Roy, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Good to be with you, Mark. You're down in Georgia, I believe, but you've been traveling all over. You've got a pretty heavy speaking schedule, and I think you've also been down to Honduras just recently. Tell me about what you've been doing. Yes, my life is revolving for years now around U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, and what brought me into this issue, you know, years ago when I left the military, thinking of making the military a career, you know, I had this experience in Vietnam that was a turning point in my life. I realized that I didn't want to be a warrior. I wanted to be a peacemaker, a healer, very inspired by a a missionary priest I met in Vietnam. And this led me to joining the Marinal Order, became a Catholic priest, and went off to serve the poor in Bolivia. And it was there in this slum of Bolivia, outside of La Paz, uh, the capital, where this became my home for the next five years. And it was here where the poor really became my teachers, they really introduced to this gringo my country's foreign policy. I knew so little about it. And, of course, they were on the receiving end. What was going on is not complicated, which later led to the School of the Americas issue, but we were on the wrong side. Our country, the United States, was supporting a brutal dictator in Bolivia, General Hugo Banzer, and really giving arms and training to the men with the guns, the military who was very repressive. Not only in Bolivia, but next door in Chile was General Augusto Pinochet. And of course, the militaries of Central America. My life had meaning there. I was very happy working with the poor, struggling for justice and a better way of life with them. In my fifth year, I was arrested and was forced out of the country, expelled, and became very involved in El Salvador after Bishop Oscar Romero, was assassinated, and four U.S. church women, who two of them were the Merino sisters, good friends, Mara Clark and Edith Ford. But that brought us much closer, Mark, to El Salvador. We spoke out against our country's military aid to El Salvador, but we couldn't stop the bloodshed. It, it got up to a million dollars a day, uh, all coming from our tax money. I've never seen anything like El Salvador. Having gone there a few times during the, the height of the Civil War and the height of the death squads there, I've never seen a military so brutal to its people. It was, it was really the slaughter of the innocents. They now went after the six Catholic priests of the Jesuit order at their university in San Salvador who were educating the world about what was going on in this little country, El Salvador and also talking about U.S. military aid there. But the military entered the University of the Jesuits November the 16th, 1989, after midnight, and dragged these six Jesuits out of their rooms. Most of them were scholars, uh, professors at the university. 
With them was a young mother, their co-worker Elba, and her teenage daughter Selena. And they were massacred. They were shot at close range. And this made the front pages of our newspapers. Members of Congress, some knew the Jesuits, and uh, they became very angry. They sent a congressional task force to investigate and came back reporting that those responsible for the massacre were trained at the U.S. Army School of the Americas at Fort Benning, Georgia. That is where I am today, and that brought me here in this little apartment where I'm looking outside of my window here. Welcome to Fort Benning. I and a small group of 10 of us came here in 1990 to start investigating the U.S. Army School of the Americas. Wow, that's quite a journey, starting from your time in Vietnam. Did you volunteer or were you drafted for Vietnam? Did you really want to be a warrior? Was that part of the drive in your life? It was, Mark. I mean, I came out of a small town in Louisiana, went off to the State University, worked hard at a degree in geology, really hoping back then to get rich in the oil fields of South America. And, but it was gonna, I was either going to be drafted or you know, I saw another option to volunteer. Uh, I became a naval officer, went to Officer Candidate School in Newport, Rhode Island. And I must say it was my ticket out of Louisiana. It was an adventurous time. You know, it was really my first job, good salary, traveling a lot. And I thought of making really the military a career. There was a mixture of, you know, this patriotism, this machismo, this adventure, you know, being a very, very adventurous time. And really, when the big buildup began in Vietnam, I volunteered. I believed, as they said, our cause was noble. We were going to be the liberators. It was the same language used to justify the invasion of Iraq. And I bought into that great lie. At the, at the time, of course, I didn't see it as a lie. The prophet Isaiah says it very well, I think. They, they will take evil, he said. They will take evil and call it good. They will take the lie and call it truth. And, you know, our country's leaders, even spiritual leaders sometimes, to support war, will package evil as good. We'll take the lie and give it to us as truth. And I bought into that lie. So many of us did. But it was that experience, my year in Vietnam on shore duty, that became a turning point. Losing friends there and wounded there. Uh, death was close. And as a result, I think I was really, you know, God became closer to me in my life. My faith became more important. In a way, the madness of it all drove me into the arms of God. It was then, about midway through my year's tour of duty, I started for the first time to question the war and my presence there. I was very inspired by a Catholic priest uh, working at a nearby orphanage near our base. I would go there to help out this old missionary who was trying to care for about 300 orphans. Their parents had been killed in the war. Many of them had been wounded by our bombs and bullets. And for the first time, I started to see the war through the eyes of the victims, especially the children. As we all know, in Iraq, Vietnam, in all wars, the majority of the victims, the majority of those killed, wounded, they are civilians. They began to really have an effect on me, the children at this orphanage. And I must say, I realized I could no longer stay in the military. I wanted to be a peacemaker. 
And I talked to an army chaplain about becoming a Catholic priest. I felt God was calling me in that direction to be a priest in the Catholic Church. And he recommended the Merino Order. I said, Mary who? I'd never heard of this group. He said they're working in 25 countries around the world serving the poor. Wrote off all kinds of information and material. And really, I felt this was the group that I want to team up with. This is going to be my ticket now to serve the poor in other countries. And so I, you know, entered Marino six years later, ordained a Catholic priest, and got the support of my close-knit family in Louisiana. Uh, at first, they were a little shocked to hear that I was becoming a priest. They didn't quite understand it, but they became very supportive when they realized that I'd found joy in my life. I had a lot of hope that I was happy in what I was doing. And when I went off to Bolivia for those five years, they were very supportive. Through football pools and projects in the little town there, they raised thousands of dollars to help the poor in this slum of Bolivia where I was living with the poor. So we were doing this work together. It's quite a 180-degree turn, apparently, that you did from being a very motivated soldier in Vietnam. Did you become a complete pacifist? Are you opposed to all wars? Is there such thing? I mean, in, in Catholic Church, there's the just war doctrine. There's question about what you do on self-defense. Where do you stand theologically on that? Where did you end up going? Yeah, that, that's an important question about pacifism. There's a lot of misunderstanding or confusion about what that means. Uh, as an activist, you know, I, I'm very active as many peacemakers. We believe in nonviolent resistance. You know, I've spent, you know, a little over four years in U.S. federal prisons for protesting in a nonviolent way my country's foreign policy in Latin America. For me, what it means about this just war theory, you know, as a Catholic priest now, I must say I'm very disappointed and get upset with Mike Church's leaders, bishops, who somehow, like during the Vietnam War, said that it was a war that was justified. You know, they brought in the prerequisites uh, for a just war. And Iraq, you know, they justified that war the invasion of Iraq. And what I've come to is that this all came about in the fourth century. Years before, I mean, when you look at, when you read the Holy Scriptures, I mean, this man Jesus made it very clear. When he said, thou shalt not kill, there wasn't a little asterisk down there, you know, except in Vietnam or except in Iraq or other countries. I mean, he, he was very clear. And what we have done as people of little faith and little hearts and minds is somehow take the gospel message and the very, very, very clear mandate of Jesus, do not kill, violence is not the way. And, you know, we try and come up with diplomatic reasons and sophisticated theology to justify war. And I just don't buy into it, as many Catholics don't. But the sad part of it, though, Mark, is that many traditional Catholics, submissive Catholics, We'll go with the church leaders. If tomorrow, I can't envision that, but let's say if the Pentagon and President Obama said we must invade Iran, you know, I think there might be many Catholic church leaders who will support that and bring in the just war theory, and with them they will bring a lot of submissive Catholics. But also in the church, I know in the Catholic church there is a growing number of people who would say no to that war, who would resist. 
who would remind the bishops that they are causing a scandal, that they do not have the courage to say no to war. To be very honest, I'm very encouraged. In my travels, there is a movement now, I know in the Catholic Church and many faith traditions, while the leaders might be silent about war and U.S. foreign policy here in the U.S. and elsewhere, many of the grassroots people, let's say the Catholics in the pews, are no longer submissive as in years past. They realize that as people of faith, we must take responsibility. We cannot simply leave these major decisions, especially about war, to our leaders, whether they be the president or our church leaders, that we have a voice and we must speak out for peace and justice and nonviolence. And often we cannot wait for our political leaders, our church leaders, to speak out against war because uh, they won't. I say this in all honesty, and it's rather strong, but, you know, as a Catholic priest for 37 years, it saddens me to see a lot of our church leaders who have become corporate executives. Many of our spiritual leaders, our shepherds, have become government sheep. They, I don't know, have lost touch with the gospel message and the words of Jesus who said, we are to be peacemakers. This must not make you a lot of friends within the hierarchy of the Catholic Church to speak so clearly and passionately. I think that Francis of Assisi had the same issue. A lot of people opposed him because he was speaking out in support of the poor, but somehow he did get accepted into the church much better than I think we would have predicted. What's your status with respect to the church? Do they want to kick you out, or is the Marinol a, a safe haven for people who really want to live out that gospel message of Jesus? I was very blessed when I chose, this was grace at work, when I entered Marinol as a young man, you know, leaving the military. Marinol over the years, you know, has been my community. It's been very supportive of my work in peace and justice. When I started the School of the Americas Watch, this was not a big issue. I mean, we live and work with the poor of Latin America and see firsthand the brutality of the military. So when I came here to start organizing and to investigate the School of the Americas, I mean, I received in the early days and throughout these years great support from my Marino community. They come to our annual gathering every November. In fact, we're preparing next month about 20,000 people will gather at the main gate of Fort Benning to once again call for the closing of a school. The School of the Americas, now renamed WINSEC, the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. We will be gathering here 20,000 strong once again to keep alive the memories of the victims, the countless numbers of people in places like El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and elsewhere who have been killed and made to suffer through this training. I mean, graduates of this school, over 60,000 we have trained here from 17 countries in Latin America, all with our tax money. These soldiers, after you know learning their combat skills, their commando tactics, they have gone back to these countries and have caused untold suffering and death. I'm happy to say while we began way back 20 years ago with 10 of us, the movement has just blossomed. Now, when we gather next month, I would say among the 20,000, over half will be college and university students. We have a lot of military veterans here. 
Iraq vets, Vietnam vets. We're going to have a lot of nuns with us who joined our movement in the very beginning. We're going to have a lot of parents coming with their children. And what we're all doing is trying to use our voices to call for the closing of a school. What we're trying to do is connect in solidarity with sisters and brothers of places like Honduras and El Salvador who are on the receiving end of our country's foreign policy, which is really rooted in a grave injustice. We have been going to these countries, let me say over the last couple of years, we have visited 15 countries in Latin America whose troops are being sent here to meet with their presidents and defense ministers about pulling out their troops. It hurts us, you know, as U.S. citizens to see in Latin America how we are perceived by the people there. They often refer to our country as El Imperio, the empire. We have been in their countries for decades, exploiting their cheap labor and their vast natural resources. Well, that's changing now with this sea change taking place in these countries. Their presidents are becoming closer to the poor than with the rich. I'm happy to report that we've gotten four countries after meeting with their presidents and others. We've gotten four countries to sever their ties to the school. Those countries are Argentina, Uruguay, Venezuela, and Bolivia. It was a joy to go back to Bolivia. Now, here's a country where the majority of the people are indigenous. And for the first time in Bolivia's history, they have a president. President Evo Morales, who we met with when we were there, who has become the very first indigenous president of the country. And that is giving a lot of hope to the people. And what we also found was a lot of the militaries of these countries are being sidelined. Closing the School of the Americas at Fort Benning, we feel, will help sideline those militaries of these countries that have really caused a lot of suffering to their people. Once again, Merino and the Jesuits, and when we gather here, all these religious communities, the nuns, the Franciscans, their community members are among the 20,000 here simply because we see a grave injustice. We see something here that leads to violence rather than peace. Let's make sure that people can connect up with that. I assume other people can come. I think they should go to the website. I think it's soaw.org, schoolamericaswatch.org, and they can find out how to be part of this. How do you put up 20,000 people? I don't think there's that many hotels. How do 20,000 people descend on the place? And I think the dates this year are November 20th to 22nd. Did I get that right? Yes, correct. The weekend before Thanksgiving. And for more information and, you know, our group rates at the hotels can all be found on org, as you just mentioned. It's amazing. Columbus, Georgia, 100 miles out of from Atlanta, south of Atlanta, is a city of about 300,000. Fort Benning is the biggest employer here. 25,000 troops here. Another 15,000 civilians work on the base. There are all these hotels. In fact, just over the last two years, another six or seven hotels have sprouted up. There have been, in the past, a couple of years where folks had to go, you know, a half hour away to get a hotel room in other parts of Georgia. But the last couple of years, because of new hotels coming up, and I must say, 
When we first got started here, Mark, they referred to us protesters as a small group of outside agitators. They didn't know really who we were and a little sort of threatened by protesting here, you know, in a big military town. But that has changed. When our numbers got up to about 5,000, I remember getting a call from the Visitors Bureau asking when our next convention would be. What I didn't realize was that, you know, we were pumping a lot of money into this community, filling up the restaurants and hotels. And so I used to have to call all these hotels to get group rates. Well, the Visitors Bureau does that now. And really, the people have gotten to know us, the so-called SOA watch people coming in. They know who we are. We're peacemakers. We come in the name of peace. And they know that we are connecting as U.S. citizens to people in other countries of Latin America who are made to suffer because of this school down the road at Fort Benning and because of our country's foreign policy. And, you know, I live in this community now. I get a lot of good positive feedback asking, you know, when are, when are the protesters coming back? They're real. You know, they've never met nicer people. And it's going to be a great event again. We're going to have a lot of speakers, musicians. That Saturday night when we gather, that Saturday before Thanksgiving, what we do, we take over the convention center. We have thousands there. We have teach-ins and workshops, and we address all these issues of peace and justice, discrimination. Just among the 28 Jesuit colleges around the country, they bring about 3,000 of their students, and lots of students come now from high schools. And Sunday, when we gather, it's very solemn. We have this funeral procession. The thousands who are here at the main gate of Fort Benning, we have this procession, and thousands carry these small white crosses bearing the names and the ages of the victims, many of them children. And as we process solemnly the names of the victims, those killed by graduates of the school, are called off on the PS system, and after each name, the thousands there in unison will say, Padesenti. This person is present with us. It's part of the Latin American tradition, their culture, that word presente, this person is present with us. And then when we get to the main gate that's locked, is topped with barbed wire, chain link fence, we put those crosses and photographs of the victims on that fence. We turn it into this memorial wall. And again, it's deeply spiritual. I think we're touching on the sacred here, and many weep. Many, when they get to the fence, they just kneel in silence to remember those who had been the victims. November 16th of 1989, eight precious children of God were visited by death at the government's hand spilling blood where their humble feet had trod. <laughs> Blood flowed like fire into the rivers of the night, coursing through lands near and far, warming the passions of those who seek justice, shining with the radiance of a star. Lágrimas brotan de los ojos de Dios al suelo del jardín del cielo. 
crecen las flores de luz en el nombre de nuestro Señor Jesús. Y en the heavens of our dreams, God shed a tear, which blossomed like a flower in the sky. Seven teardrops more lit the velvet of the night, flowers in the fields where they Now let us call Presente after each precious name. Presente. Selena. Presente. Elba Julia. Presente. Ignacio. Presente. Amando. Presente. Joaquin. Presente. Ignacio. Presente. Segundo. Presente. Juan Ramón. Presente. Lágrimas brotan de los ojos de Dios al suelo del jardín del cielo. Ya crecen las flores de luz en el nombre de nuestro Señor Jesús. Lágrimas by Daniel Ben Avram. Daniel is one of the many dedicated workers trying to close down what used to be called School of Americas, or SOA, now with a name that abbreviates to WINSAC. I'm Mark Helpsmeet of Northern Spirit Radio, and my Spirit in Action guest today is another incredibly dedicated worker against the SOA, Father Roy Bouchois. Roy, you've been there, literally in front of Fort Benning, where the SOA training is done. And we can tell you you're there from all the traffic noise we hear in your background. And gearing up for the massive witness coming up in a few weeks, you really have been very successful in bringing together a lot of folks, tens of thousands really, to bring pressure to close down the SOA. It's really quite remarkable. I want to say, too, we're getting very close, Mark, to closing the school. We have a bill in Congress, H.R. 2567. And it's very important for our listeners to contact their members of Congress and simply say that they support the bill to cut off funding to the School of the Americas, the SOA. They don't know exactly what you're talking about. Two years ago, we came within 10 votes of cutting off the funding. We're getting there. We're not going away. The movement is growing. It continues to grow. Major newspapers have addressed this issue and called for its closure. The Washington Post, the New York Times, Newsweek, the Chicago Tribune, the Detroit Free Press, Boston Globe, and Los Angeles Times, and many other newspapers. I mean, this is a big issue. It won't go away. And we are hopeful that within, I would say, next year or perhaps even in the fall, they're going to vote on this next month. I and many in the movement who have been in the military, Mark, have a problem with the school in this regard. I've debated three of the commandants of the school over the years at different universities. I welcome those debates. I believe in debate. You know, the commandant of the school gives his reasons why we need the school. 
the principal reasons that they've always given for the school is that we are teaching democracy, and we are very transparent, they said, about what we're teaching. Well, about teaching democracy, I must say we've got a real serious problem with that, especially we who have been in the military. I don't know how you teach democracy behind the barrel of a gun. This is not possible. I don't know how you teach democracy behind a chain link fence that I'm looking at now that says no trespassing. About this issue of transparency, the reason we have been able to indict the school for its many human rights abuses because we always had, before the year 2001, we always were given the names of the graduates where there are human rights abuses, especially in Colombia today, where most of the soldiers are coming from, when the names of those soldiers responsible for these atrocities are publicized, we go to the list. Usually about 85% are graduates of the school. But in the year 2001, they stopped giving us the names. They give us the countries that are represented here, but all of the names of the soldiers are blacked out. So much for transparency. What are they hiding? Why is it transparent? This is a combat school. Courses revolve around combat skills, counterinsurgency. Also, front page of the Washington Post, 1998, front page, the U.S. taught at the school were the torture manuals. They discovered in the curriculum, and it had to come out, it was announced by the Pentagon, that manuals used in the curriculum actually advocated torture. I just don't know how one begins to justify this school. One last thing, and this is very important, the starting point of this issue is not here. It's not the combat courses here, the M-16s that they're taught to use, the counterinsurgency courses the starting point of this issue is Latin America. If we were to get on a plane tomorrow and we would go to El Salvador, Guatemala, Colombia, Bolivia, all of these countries whose soldiers are here, we would notice, we would see the majority of the people in these countries are struggling for survival. They are the poor of these countries. They make up the majority of these countries. They live in shacks without running water. When their kids get sick, there's not a clinic to go to to get those needed medicines. So many of them will die before reaching the age of four or five. And all I want to say to anyone who might try and support this school, the poor of Latin America do not need commandos. They don't need more soldiers or guns. They need food. They need adequate housing. They need health care. And this really is at the very core of this issue. Amen. I'm totally with you there. One last thing, I just because uh, it comes to mind, this beloved General General Eisenhower, Ike, said it very well. Every dollar that we spend for a missile, every dollar that we spend for an aircraft carrier or a, a gun, that money, that dollar is a theft from those who are hungry from those who lack adequate housing. That is the message of the Gospels, you know, the message <laughs> of the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, you know? Absolutely. If you just tuned in, this is Spirit in Action, and my name is Mark Helpsmeet. I'm your host for this Northern Spirit Radio production. 
You can always find out about the guests on my program and listen to these and other programs via my website, northernspiritradio.org. We're speaking today with the founder of the School of America's Watch. His name is Roy Bourgeois, and he is a Marinol priest, has been dedicating his life to working for the safety and well-being of the poor for so many years. It's a real joy to have him join us today for Spirit in Action. Roy, there's other issues besides the School of Americas that you've been led to address most recently. Could you tell us about those also? Yes, Mark. I want to just say this in a personal way. You know, I've been a Catholic priest now for 37 years. I have a deep love for my church and my ministry. Now, what has happened over the last 20 years in working on this School of the Americas issue, speaking out about the injustice of the school and our country's U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, in my many, many talks over the years in churches and colleges, I have met a number of devout Catholic women who share their faith with me as a Catholic priest and also said that they too, as, as a woman of deep faith, felt called to the priesthood. And I must say at first, being a guy, um, always told that you cannot because this is our tradition, only males can be ordained, females cannot. I must say, but I really, because meeting more and more women, I I had to really ask, why not? And I started to do some research. It's an issue that we never really talked about in the seminary years ago. But what I discovered is that we profess, as people of most faith traditions, you know, we as Christians, we profess that God created men and women of equal dignity and standing. As Catholic clergy, we all say, I don't know of any priest who would not say this, we all say that the call to priesthood is a gift and comes from God. And the next question is the one I I had to ask myself, and I think all priests, beginning with Pope Benedict on down, we have to ask, and it's this, who are we as men to say to women, our call is valid, but theirs is not? Who are we as men to negate God's call of women to the priesthood? And what I've discovered, Mark, is something very serious. I've discovered that at the very core of my church's teaching that excludes women from the priesthood is this sin of sexism. Sexism, you know, like racism, is a sin. And no matter how hard we may try, including our church leaders, may try to justify discrimination against others, in the end, it's always wrong. It's immoral. And so what I've discovered is, again, an injustice much closer to home. It's very clear to me as a Catholic priest for 37 years that the exclusion of women from the priesthood is a grave injustice against women, a grave injustice against our church, and a grave injustice against our loving God who calls women to the priesthood. And because of seeing this injustice with such clarity, I had to break my silence. In the midst of an injustice, silence is the voice of complicity. And what I had to do as a Catholic priest, I had to now start speaking publicly about the ordination of women in the Catholic Church. Well, I'm totally with you on that issue. Of course, I'm a Quaker these days. I was raised Catholic, and Quakers have been treating women as equal ministers for 350 years. 
Still, I know that there are arguments that people bring up. Certainly, some of them are biblically based. Paul says things like a woman's not supposed to have authority over man and that the man's the head of the family just as Jesus is head of church and so on. How do you respond to those who have a biblically-based concern that women should not have authority in the church in that same way? I think a lot depends upon our image of God and the God that we worship. I mean, for a lot of church leaders, the God that they worship is a very sexist God, very male God who prefers men, that somehow men are superior to women. But, you know, in 2009, I mean, most theologians, most people of faith, I think, do not have that image of God. The problem also in in dealing with sexism, like racism, at the very core of that is this issue of power. Patriarchy is at the root of this. You know, 5,000 years of patriarchy, some 2,000 in the Christian churches, in the Catholic Church in particular, and it's not easy to break down. What we have are men who claim this divine right to interpret the scriptures. Men in the Catholic Church have always claimed a divine right to interpret the mind and the will of God. Well, they might feel they have this right, but there's a problem here. 50% of the population, if not more, are women. You know, men are brought into the world by women. There could be a tremendous argument, I think, where women are more godlike. <laughs> Sometimes I think I could put together a very good argument why only women should be ordained. <laughs> they, you know, they give birth. They are more godlike. They, they are co-creators. But, but I do believe in this issue of equality. I think it's ignorance at work. When I hear a church leader or some fellow priest saying or trying to go to the scriptures to justify sexism or racism. I mean, I grew up in the rural South. You know, I mean, we use the Bible to justify the segregated schools. And in the church that I attended as a Catholic, I remember this growing up in our little town, the last five pews were reserved for the blacks. And, you know, for hundreds of years, the Catholic Church, you know, said that slavery was according to the will of God. That, that was acceptable. That was part of the church's teaching. And, of course, Galileo, Copernicus got in big trouble. You know, were excommunicated because they tried to say that the earth was not the center of the universe, but that we were revolving around the sun, and they were seen as heretics. And what we've got here, I think, you know, years from now, we will look back at this church's teaching and simply ask, you know, how could we have been so ignorant as we ask now about our policies toward, you know, in our schools and churches? You know, I look back, why, why growing up Catholic, how could not, you know, our priests simply say to the congregation, with the last five pews in the back for the black members, you know, we've got a little problem here. There seems to be a contradiction to what Jesus is saying. So let me just say, Mark, what has happened in my own situation, because I have been so vocal, I have gotten in trouble with the Vatican, because basically what they are saying, not only is this the church teaching, you know, women cannot be ordained, clear, clearly stated. Not only that, but there will be no debate or discussion about this issue. Now, this is what I find very offensive. They say that in the Quaker tradition or, you know, in other faith traditions, that mature people of faith would be told 
that you cannot discuss about gender equality in your church or sexism or racism. I mean, this is just incomprehensible. You know, basically the message from Rome is, you know, no debate, no discussion, go to your room. And this is not acceptable. You know, most people, the polls are showing, a recent Gallup poll showed that the vast majority of Catholics support the ordination of women. Also, I came across, you know, the documentation is there, the Second Vatican Council document, a very important document in the Second Vatican Council. The church in the modern world states very clearly every type of discrimination based on sex is to be eradicated as contrary to God's intent. But what happens here is, I think, Mark, what happens, we as humans, you know, kind of make God in our image. We make God as, you know, the male militant, you know, who's going off to war, who has men as superior and women as inferior. And what I've discovered in my research over this last year especially, I mean, beginning with Aristotle and then the 4th century Saint, Saint Augustine, one of the early fathers of the church, later St. Thomas of, of Aquinas, all these well-known saints, the best and the brightest in our church history, who all said men are superior, women inferior. I mean, some went so far. I mean, it's so offensive. I don't even bring this up in my lectures. I mean, each of them said to, like St. Thomas Aquinas, that women are defective males. I find that so offensive. I mean, I wouldn't even use that quote in a talk today. But what we have today in the Catholic Church is part of that DNA. The the church leaders in Rome cannot use that kind of language today. So what they do is simply say that Jesus chose only male apostles. The 12 apostles were male. Well, that's not sound theology. That can't stand up to scrutiny because... We all know that Jesus chose Mary Magdalene, a woman, to appear to first after the resurrection, which is the very core of Christianity, the resurrection. And Mary Magdalene and other women were chosen, again, chosen by Jesus to bring the good news of his resurrection to the male apostles. Where were they? They were hiding out behind locked doors. They were very fearful. And it's important to note in the four Gospels that you know, when the women brought the message commissioned to them by, by Jesus, the good news, the men did not believe the women. 2,000 years later, we men still don't believe women when they are saying they are equal, they are chosen. God is calling them to the priesthood like men. And to deny that call is a grave injustice, not only against women, but against God. And for that reason... I have been speaking out clearly and boldly. When I attended the ordination of a woman priest, there are women in our church who are no longer waiting for the Vatican to ordain them, which will come, of course, but they are implementing a model of church that they want to worship in. And I went to uh, the ordination of a longtime friend in our SOA Watch movement, Janice Severdesinska in Lexington, Kentucky, who, like many women, for years has felt called to the priesthood, and I went to her ordination. As, and as a result of participating in the ordination ceremony, I received a letter from the Vatican giving me 30 days 
to recant my public statements that support the ordination of women, or I would be excommunicated automatically. That letter came last October the 21st, 2008. Two weeks later, I responded to that very serious and important letter from the Vatican, simply stating that in conscience I could not recant. I reminded the Vatican that we as people of faith must follow our conscience. There's a very important quote, actually, I, you know, that I used. The present Pope, Pope Benedict, when he was a cardinal, Cardinal Ratzinger, he stated, over the Pope there still stands one's own conscience, which must be obeyed before all else. And I simply said, you know, the Vatican is telling me I must recant my belief in public statements that support the ordination of women in the church. This I cannot do. I must obey my conscience, which tells me that the exclusion of women from the priesthood is a grave injustice. And that's my position. I continue to say in conscience I cannot and will not recant. My ministry continues. I get so many calls, so many invitations now to speak not only about the injustice of U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, but getting many, many calls from Catholic groups like the Call to Action Group to speak specifically about gender equality in our church and the ordination of women. I can see why. It certainly is an injustice long overdue for correction. Part of what you said there, Roy, was that as of last October, you received this letter. You wrote back, said, no, I can't recant in all good conscience. And they said you had a month. Does that mean that they followed through, or did they recant on their threat of excommunication? Well, since I wrote my letter November the 7th, 2008, just two weeks later, to the Vatican, stating in conscience I cannot recant what we have here again is a grave injustice. And at the root of that injustice, I did say, was the sin of sexism. And I just want to say I do believe that the reason our church leaders do not want to publicly debate this issue is simply they know they cannot. They are not confident in defending the church's teaching. It simply is not sound theology, nor can it stand up to scrutiny. For that reason, they do not want any discussion on the issue. So, But let me just say, this is a movement, the women's ordination movement in the Catholic Church, is a movement whose time has come. It's growing. It will not go away. Like any injustice, it will not go away. The situation I'm in, I must say, is, is a difficult one. It brings with it a lot of pain. Rome did not have the decency the Vatican to acknowledge receipt of my letter. I just felt, you know, as a priest for 37 years, that they would, you know, acknowledge receipt of my letter and respond to the different points that I've made. It was automatic. I had 30 days to recant. If not, I would be excommunicated automatically. And so I got the letter October the 21st. So November the 21st, I was automatically excommunicated. Now, for a lot of people, this, including myself, this does not make sense. Now, the Vatican may be saying that I have been excommunicated, not in good standing with the Catholic Church. If that's their position, I can't do anything about that. But I do know in my heart, in my conscience, I'm in good standing with my God. 
I am not excommunicated by my God. And I must say, too, it meant an awful lot to me to get the support of my family in Louisiana, who's been very supportive on my other peace and justice work. But I, I was a little concerned when I actually, after I mailed the letter to Rome, I drove to Louisiana to bring the news, the, the very serious news, uh, you know, to my family in Louisiana. My dad is 95. Um, I, we lost my mom three years ago, but my brother and two sisters and a close-knit family there with the nieces and nephews. But, but we had a, a family meeting, and I wanted to tell them personally about my situation and how Rome was asking me, telling me I must recant. And I gave them a copy of the letter I sent to Rome. I mean, I really didn't know what to expect, but my father is in great shape. He goes to church every day, actually. And you know, he just said that, you know, God brought Roy back from the war in Vietnam brought Roy back from Bolivia, his work in El Salvador, and, and God is going to take care of him now. He said, I support Roy. He's doing the right thing. Gave me this big hug. We wept. And I must say for my siblings to hear that from my dad, in a way, to get that blessing was very important to them because they thought that he might be hurt by this, that he might be made to suffer because of my decision to do this. But I came back to Georgia to continue my work and felt so at peace. I mean, it, it, we all know the power of the blessing. And to get a blessing, you know, about an issue that's very, very close to our hearts, that is really a gift. This, I think, is grace at work. And my dad and my family continues to, and I wanted all my nieces and nephews to know why I could not recant. I sent them all a letter explaining to them. I want them to know why their Uncle Roy is in this situation, that conscience is something very sacred. And when we follow our conscience, you know, we are at peace. There's this joy that's a part of our lives. And when we don't follow our conscience, that urges us to do the right thing. We're in conflict, you know. We can't sleep at night. And we all struggle, of course, with trying to follow our conscience on these critical issues as best we can. Uh, again, this is an issue that will not go away. It's a movement whose time has come. Absolutely, Roy. 100% with you there. You've been doing so much valuable work for so long, especially with the School of America's Watch. I want to remind our listeners that the School of America's Watch has their annual witness at Fort Benning, Georgia, November 20th through the 22nd. You can head down there. You go to the website, soaw.org. That's for School of America's Watch.org. You can find out where to go, how to get down there, and be part of the 20,000 people witnessing against the misuse of our funds to support oppression of the peoples of Latin America. Please join Father Roy Bourgeois and the rest of the folks who are going to be there on November 20th to 22nd. Roy, you've been doing this witness for so long, been such a valuable gift you've given to our country and to the rest of the people of the world and also to the women of the world with your strong witness in favor of ordination of women. Thank you so much for taking your time to join me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. I just want to you know, just say that you give us a lot of hope in the struggle. Also, it's been a joy to be with you, you know, and your listeners. And just in closing, I just feel it's important that we try to address this best we can. 
you know, clearly and boldly these issues of injustice. And I've been very inspired in my own life by this Archbishop Oscar Romero, who is an inspiration to so many of us. But what he said was, you know, let those who have a voice speak for the voiceless. Let those who have a voice, you know, work for peace and justice. And I just feel this is where we come in. You know, we can all do something in this work for peace and justice, and we can do it well. And I'd lastly, you know, as a, if, if anyone, you know, if our listeners, no matter what faith tradition you may be, if you know a Catholic priest or a church leader, that's not speaking for justice. I think in a loving way, ask them to break their silence. If you know a Catholic priest who's not addressing this issue of gender equality in the ordination of women, in a kind way, just ask them to please break their silence. Uh, we can all do something, and we can do it well. Thanks again, Roy. Thank you, Mark. That was Father Roy Bourgeois, Catholic priest of the Mary Knoll Order, a steadfast presence with the School of America's Watch, worker for the poor, and witness for the equality of women within the Catholic Church. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song,